Good morning. Welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor. I'm grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. It's a it's a beautiful day. We have a lot to be to be grateful for. Um, Want to congratulate our men, our guys' basketball team. They had another win on Friday night. They keep winning. Um, to the coaches, congratulations. We're proud of you guys. You represent us well. We've got a big game on. Tuesday night. Tuesday night. Um, want to say another thank you to the guys who, all the people, not just the guys, all the people that helped us with our sportsman's banquet last night. It is a pretty incredible event that they do um, for years and years. But just sitting there looking in our gym, 500 men, will, women, teenagers, and to have a speaker who is sharing the gospel, um, you know, to look out in the crowd and to see that this isn't a Mount Calvary church event. Like, there's not a lot of people we know. This is a community outreach. Um, so I had a really, it was a powerful time. Um, got to eat some moose, moose chili, elk chili. What was it? Moose and elk. Moose and elk chili. That was good. I've never had that before. <laughs> um, but it was a great night. And to all the guys and all the, the ladies and all the kids that helped, thank you for, for your participation. And God really worked in a powerful way. Um, let's pray as we open up God's word this morning. Father, we do pray for the men and the women and the teenagers that made decisions last night. 75 people who thinking about where they are with you last night, right next door to us, right here in the gym. God, I pray that this morning, as they wake up, all of them, that they would continue to consider where they are with you, that they would be motivated to take another step with you, to get into a church, to be discipled. God, I pray that you give them a longing to learn more about you. Like the speaker said last night, there are hurting, hurting people all around us. And we pray, God, that as people hurt, um, they would turn to you. So, God, we pray that we thank you for what you did last night. And now we humbly ask you, God, that you would continue to move in those lives, that, that you would change not just continue to change not just their lives, but their families' lives, and that they would learn to depend fully and completely on you. And God, this morning, now here, as we open up your word, as we turn our sights to Jerusalem, to the final week of your son, Jesus Christ, God, I pray that you would help us to know the significance of this last week. And God, as we think about your son, Jesus, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, you'd work in our lives, that we would fully, passionately pursue you in all things. God, change our hearts, change our lives. Holy Spirit, convict, encourage, and move each of us through the teaching of your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be spending the next six weeks 
including this morning, on Jesus' last seven days on earth. Jesus had a week left to live, and we know the days of what Jesus did. Sunday, Monday, all the way through Friday, through Easter Sunday. And this last week is significant. If you look at the Gospels, you can tell how significant this last week is just by looking at how much is written about it. Matthew gives over a quarter of its entire Gospel on these last seven days. Mark gives a third of his gospel. John gives almost half of his entire gospel to these last seven days because it's significant. These last seven days of Jesus are so important in Jesus's ministry, three-year ministry on earth. It really comes down to this last seven days. Two weeks ago, I got a phone call from my mom telling me about Our Aunt Alice. So Aunt Alice is a great aunt. She's like a grandmother to me. Grew up going to visit her in Highlands, North Carolina. Lots of trout fishing and meatloaf and woodworking and all sorts of fun things. Well, she has been very sick over the last, over a year. Um, And mom called me two weeks ago and said she had fallen. She had broken her hip. She was in hospice. She was unresponsive. And she said the nurses had told her that she had about a week, about a week to live, seven days. And as I was kind of thinking through this series and thinking about my Aunt Alice, um, it, it definitely had me thinking. So that was two weeks ago. Well, seven days later, on sun, the next Sunday, a week ago from today, my mom called me and said Aunt Alice had passed. And she had said, so my mom had changed all her plans to go down there, and she was sitting next to her, and she said to me on the day before, she said, it hasn't been a good week. It hasn't been pleasant at all. She said, Saturday was so heavy, sitting next to Aunt Alice in such a different state than we know Aunt Alice. I mean, the pain and just that she's sitting there, and it's so hard, as my mom is describing this, and she just said to me, it was so such a relief to get the call from the hospital saying that she'd passed. And as I think about in Alice's last seven days, they were nothing like the life that she lived. She was an expert, expert woodworker. She didn't do any of that her last seven days. She was completely unresponsive. Her last seven days were nothing like the life that she lived. And as I think about Jesus's last seven days, Jesus's last seven days are the opposite of my Aunt Alice's last seven days. Jesus's last seven days are a picture, are the culmination of everything that Jesus has done. It all comes to fruition, his last seven days. And it is the most significant week in the ministry of Jesus's life. And if you think back when we were preaching through the Gospel of John, and you think through just kind of the flow of Jesus' ministry on earth. Okay, we started with Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John, when Jesus turned the water into wine. And if you remember there in Cana, and you remember his ministry as we preached through that sermon, as we thought through that passage, what that miracle was like. It was very anonymous. 
Jesus didn't stand up on a table and make a big scene to change the water into wine. It was almost behind the scenes. Nobody even knew, not everyone even knew who had done it. And Jesus, at the end of the miracle, at the end of this miracle says, it's not the right time. And this kind of, this kind of pattern happens through Jesus' three years of ministry where he heals someone in Mark 1. A man with leprosy comes up to him and he heals him. And Jesus says to him, don't tell anyone. Or in Matthew 9 when the two blind men are healed. What does Jesus say? Don't talk to anyone about this. This is a secret. To Jairus' daughter, once he heals her, what does he say to them? He says, and I'm quoting, he strictly charged them that no one should know. But why? Why from the beginning of Jesus' three-year ministry was it so hush-hush quiet? Because it wasn't the right time. It wasn't time to go public. And if you fast forward through these three years of ministries and you get to this kind of this last weekend before Good Friday. So we're talking about Sunday, Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. But before that Palm Sunday, Jesus had just made the trip to Bethany from Jericho. Okay, from Jericho to Bethany was 17 miles, 3,000 feet of elevation gain. Okay, a crazy hike. Jesus gets to Bethany. Okay, this is the Friday before Palm Sunday. He gets to this very familiar town in Bethany and he hears about his good friend Lazarus dying. Okay, and he is, he is upset about this. But Jesus gives it a few days. He hears that Lazarus has died and he gives it some time. He waits for the crowds to come together. Probably the funeral is happening. He waits for the people from Jerusalem, that new Lazarus, to come into Bethany for this time. And Jesus goes to the funeral. He goes to the graveyard. And he says, stop the service. Move the gravestone. Lazarus, come out. He turns to the people as he calls Lazarus to come out of the grave. He turns to the people and he says to them as clearly as he could, God has sent me for you. I am here as God's messenger. I am here to declare the message of God. And as we look kind of at this this buildup of Jesus' ministry, we see how things have quickly changed. Where the first several years, Jesus is quietly kind of in the shadows doing these miracles. Now, this weekend before Good Friday... Jesus is as emphatic and clear as he possibly could be. I am from God. I am healed. I am bringing a man who was dead and I am bringing him to life. And he does it in the most public way possible. And the response was what Jesus knew the response would have been all along. It's a very polarizing response. The Jewish people worship him, recognize what he did as the Messiah, and they worship him. John 11 tells us this. Many of the Jews believed in him, he says. 
But then also at the same time that there is this devout belief and worship in Jesus, on the other side, there is this deep hatred and anger that comes about. John eleven fifty seven. the chief priests and the Pharisees gave orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This polarizing response as Jesus has now come public. He has come into Bethany and the message is out. I am from God and I bring the dead to life. One commentator described this, this atmosphere that would have been in Jerusalem and Bethany at this time. He says this. The Passover crowds in Jerusalem were like a powder keg ready for a spark, filled to the brim with both messianic fervor and hatred of Roman rule. The long-awaited Messiah had finally come and would soon come to Jerusalem at Passover to overthrow Rome. And in this understanding, Romans were dead set on killing this man to squelch any revolution that could have been started. Jesus is about to walk into Jerusalem at Passover. The excitement would have been off the charts. The anger would have been deep. Romans were worried that he was coming to overthrow their empire. The Jewish people had been waiting and waiting and waiting. And now the Messiah had come. It would have been chaos. Chaos, excitement, and anger, and all this together. And Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem at Passover when hundreds of thousands of Jews, literally 100,000 Jews from all over the world, come to Jerusalem. The crowds are described in this passage. The crowds are before Jesus. The crowds are behind Jesus. And Jesus is walking in at Passover. When I think about this scene of All these different emotions that people are feeling, I cannot help but think of what must have surrounded the largest civil rights demonstration in the United States history. A place that our family, the Watsons, have walked many, many times in Washington, D.C., from the monument to the Lincoln Memorial. But it was very different than when we walked it. This would have been the March on Washington. Martin Luther King, 250,000 people coming together at this march. All the organizations, all the different people coming together as one voice to say, something's not right. Now, there were many different things that would have been on the minds of the people at this march. The Jim Crow laws the desegregation of schools, banning discriminatory discriminatory hiring practices, equal access to public facilities and housing. There There were so many things that would have been on the mind of the people. But the excitement and the anticipation of this day, of this event, would have been off the charts. I was reading about how many of the, many African American people got there that day. They said that 21 charter trains came bringing people from all over the country. 21 of those trains. I read about a person who, I don't, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but roller skated to the march from Chicago. An 82-year-old who rode his bike from Ohio. Three student marchers who hitchhiked 
700 miles to get there. The excitement of all these organizations coming together to stand up for equality and for a cause that they loved and they believed in would have been, would have been thick. But yet at the same time, not everybody was excited about this. JFK brings in Martin Luther King Jr. two months before the event and says, I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical about this march. There was one newspaper, that really headline that really caught my attention. This was the headline. The general feeling is that the vandals are coming to sack Rome. One more time. The headline in the paper, the Washington Daily News, the general feeling is that the vandals are coming to sack Rome. I mean, that could, have been the, that could have been the headline on Palm Sunday. There's excitement, there's energy, there's unity, but yet at the same time, not everyone's excited. This week is so significant in the ministry of Jesus, but it is even bigger than just the ministry of Jesus. This week, this last week, is the culmination of God's plan since creation. This final week is the culmination of God's plan since before creation. In Genesis 3.15, when the, the gospel and the promise of the gospel was pronounced, the first promise of the gospel, in Genesis 3.15, when the snake was going to be stepped on and crushed, was finally coming to fruition this final week. And so this week, it is so important for us, I think, to to follow this week, to think about this week. So let's turn to Matthew 21 when Jesus makes his entrance. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and they came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them. He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Three thoughts that I want to I think through with you as we look at this passage. First, in the chaos, Jesus directed. In the chaos, Jesus was the director. This is simple, yet it is so important for us To capture, look at how Jesus is portrayed in verse 2. He's barking out orders. He's telling everyone exactly how what's about to happen is going to unfold. 
He tells them what animals he's going to ride upon. He tells them where the animals can be found. He tells them what they need to do to get them. He tells them how they should respond if they're questioned. Jesus is directing the moment. Jesus is not just, I think sometimes we feel like, or maybe we don't feel like this, but that Jesus is passively just letting this event kind of unfold. I mean, this would have been a chaotic situation, as I've already described, right? There are people who are adoring Jesus. The crowds are in front of him and behind him. There are angry people that want to arrest him. There are people that want to worship him. Hundreds of thousands of people in a city that was not built for this many people. It would have been chaotic. But Jesus was not passive in how the event would unfold. It wasn't just by chance. Jesus is clearly portrayed in verse 2 as the one who is orchestrating all of it. He's not, the, the picture isn't Jesus is the inmate that is being brought to his execution. Very passive. He is just being led to what is about to happen. The picture that's given to us in verse 2 is Jesus is the general. Jesus is telling us exactly how it's going to happen. He's telling his disciples, this is what it's going to look like. He's the director. It's like he is directing exactly what is about to happen, and he is setting up the scene perfectly. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Jesus is directing this event. What's he doing? What's, he, what, what's the significance of this? Well, I think Jesus is communicating with his disciples and he's communicating with us and he's saying, if I can direct through the chaos of this moment, the chaos of the crowds and the anger and the worship, if I can direct and control and orchestrate this moment, I'm gonna be able to direct the moments of this next week. I'm gonna be able to be in control of what's about to happen next Friday, that I'm still in charge. But what about for us? I mean, do we believe this? Because I think what he's communicating is, is, is important for us, that if Jesus can direct that chaos that Sunday morning, then he could direct any of the chaos that we bring to him today. And the question for us is, as we think about how Jesus was firmly in control of this really chaotic day, the question for us is, is do we recognize him as our director, as our orchestrator, as the one who's in complete char in charge? I was talking to a, a friend lately who is experiencing chaos, lots of chaos in the family with mental health and with self-harm and with pure chaos and disaster and things that he did not anticipate. Chaos. The question for us as we experience chaos is, do we recognize and do we believe and do we fall down and say, God, you are in complete control. You are the director in your joblessness, 
in your struggles with your family, in whatever your chaos is, do we recognize that as Jesus directed the chaos of this day, do we recognize that he is directing whatever we experience and whatever we face? That's the message that Jesus is showing this morning. On that Sunday, that's what he is communicating. I'm in charge. I've got this. It's not going to always look like it. But I'm in charge. And I'm doing exactly what I meant to do. And he says the same for us. And for our own little situations, big situations that are hard. But not only that, I think Jesus is doing few other things. In our confusion, in the confusion of the moment, Jesus is confirming. In the confusion, Jesus is confirming. Okay, we've, we've talked about it. I've already mentioned it, but there had been some confusion up to this point. Jesus wasn't clearly saying to the crowds who he was, but now the gloves were off. Jesus was speaking clearly. I am God. Look at what he says in verse 3 when he's directing the disciples how to answer anyone who questions them about the transportation, about the animals. What does he say? You need to tell them the Lord needs them. Like, how are they going to say no to that? Hey, can we borrow some eggs? God needs them right now. And I got to, like, you can't say no to that. The Lord needs them. I need to borrow your animals because the Lord, the sovereign king and creator who is responsible and he's eternal, he needs your animal. He is being clear now of who he is. This is the only time in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus calls himself Lord. It's because it is now time. But And I've also been kind of talking about this. There would have been confusion. BJ mentioned that. Confusion in the crowd about who this man was. It, it talks about that at the end of the passage. Verse, I think it's verse 10. It says, the city was stirred. The city was stirred up. What does that mean? It's the picture of you're sitting there and you are, being, you are, you are going in circles. Like when your kids roll down a hill, are they spinning in circles? Like they are confused. The city was stirred up. And what is the question that they're asking? Who is this? And the crowd, some of the crowd said in verse 11, this is the prophet. This is, the, this is a prophet. So even the, this part of the crowd that says he's the prophet doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. Some thought he was the Davidic king who came to overthrow Rome. And it's a very common understanding of what the people would have thought Jesus was coming to do. Some people thought he was a traitor. This mob of people are confused. And so Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9 to help the people to show who Jesus really is. Let's read that. Fulfilled prophecy one more time. He says, Behold, your king is coming, to, is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He's saying, Jesus is coming, and he's not coming on a war horse. 
He's not coming as the king who is going into war. He is the king that is coming on a donkey. The picture that the people would have thought of, hopefully, if they knew their Old Testament, would have been David coming home back into Jerusalem after his son Absalom was was killed in battle. Do you remember this scene? Jesus is coming back, or not Jesus, David is coming back into Jerusalem. His son has just, has just died, who had tried to overthrow David. And as David is coming back into Jerusalem, this is the picture that Jesus is giving in this, on this Sunday. And there's a really powerful conversation that David has in, in, in 1 Kings 19.6. And it's with a, a man named Shammai. Just listen to this, this interchange. This, this man, Shammai, who had been part of Absalom's group, who had been trying to overthrow the king, recognizes what's unfolding. And he sees David coming back into Jerusalem. And this is what he does. Verse 6 of chapter 19. He falls down before the king. Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong. For your servant knows that I have sinned. I mean, just thinking about David at this, in this moment. I mean, the anger. I mean, his son had tried to kill him and take his role as king. And this man recognizes what his punishment should be. And he falls before David and he says, I recognize what I've done. And David's response is the same kind of response that Jesus gives as he comes into Jerusalem. David says, you're not going to die. There's no more, no more blood is being spilled today. He says, you are forgiven. The, the subtitle of this passage, David pardons his enemies. This is how Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He is coming in with pardon, with, with forgiveness. Not as the conquering king, but the king who is humbly coming, who is bringing peace, and he's bringing it on a donkey, on a colt. What a picture. And I think for us, as we just think about this point for us, in the confusion Jesus confirmed, I go back to that question in verse 10, where the crowd is confused and they're, they're stirred up. And the question that they ask is, who is this? This is a question we must all answer. Who is Jesus? Who does our life say that Jesus is? Is he king? Is he Messiah? Does he rule your life? How does your life answer this question? And it is a question that we all have to answer. Who is this man? And then finally, in their limited understanding, the people worshiped. Let's read verse 8 and 9 again. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Look at this response of the people. It is like a red carpet scene. I mean, they are laying down their cloaks. They're laying down their palm branches. Picture, like BJ said, of military victory or military hope. 
symbols of worship. This is the son of David, the king who has finally come back to Jerusalem, and we will honor him like a king. What are they shouting? Hosanna, the song that we just sang. Hosanna to the son of David. Really interesting word. We sing it all the time. It's only in the Old Testament one time, Psalm 118.25, that says this, Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. This would have been a psalm that all the Jewish people would have been singing and praying as they walked into Jerusalem for Passover. So you you need to know that hundreds of thousands of Jews, when they would be walking into Jerusalem, this was one of the Psalms that they would be praying and they would be praying, God, save us, please. Save us. Send us the king. Send us the son of David. And so for the people to now be singing this Psalm and to be praying this Psalm again would have been An incredible scene. But here's what's really interesting about this word Hosanna, is how it's beginning to shift, right? The people would have been saying, God, will you save us? Like that's that's the thought of Psalm 118, 25. Save us, please help us. But eventually, because of this final week, that word was changing from a question mark, God, will you save us, to an exclamation mark. It's no longer, God, will you save us? It's becoming, God, you have saved us. And like we talked about with communion, the saving wasn't physical. They thought that their biggest rescue needed to be from Rome, the oppressors. And they had no idea that their biggest oppressors was their sin. So Hosanna, this word, this this question was changing to a praise. Worship, and for us now, when we sing Hosanna, it's not, not the way they would have sung it. God, will you save us? Save us, please. That when we sing Hosanna, we should be singing, God, thank you for being our Hosanna in Jesus Christ. Now, when he came in on that Sunday, he was starting to change the punctuation of that word. But it's interesting just thinking about the crowd. I mean, they had limited understanding. Right? The crowd is going to shift this whole week. Next week, we're going to talk about a whole different angle that Jesus is going to give. But the crowd certainly didn't understand what was happening. The disciples didn't understand what was happening. But they were still trying to worship him. But it is interesting thinking about the crowd. How many times do they say Hosanna in our passage this morning? You can answer that one when you, when you figure, figure it out. How many times do they say it? Twice? Twice? Okay, yeah, okay, thank you. That was, we need to work on that some, but. It's interesting you go to the end of the gospel. Matthew 27, verse 22 and 23. Pilate says to them, the crowd, the same crowd. Now, we don't know who in the crowd, right? There's all kinds of different people in the crowd, but I still think this is just, it's interesting. Pilate says to them, what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? They, which is the crowd, said to him, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more for the second time. Let him be crucified. 
The same crowd that said, Hosanna, Hosanna twice, is now shouting, let him be crucified, let him be crucified. Now, again, we don't know who is saying what. We know it is the crowd, but still, they don't understand what's happening. For us this morning, our worship anthem of Hosanna, it's not a question. He has done that. And we come before him, even in our limited understanding. Because listen, we're not going to understand our chaos. If you try to understand why things happen to you and how they hit, all of the, the questions that we ask, um, we're not going to get the answers. We're not going to have them. But we are responsible to come before our king. And in our chaos, We are to trust him and to fall before him as the king, as the director, and say, we trust you. You are in charge. In our confusion, we are to be grounded in who he is. In the confusion of our life, in the confusion of what we think, we are to be grounded in the truth of who Jesus is. And as we close this morning with the worship song, I I just want to encourage you to reflect on who Jesus is. The answer to that question, who is this? He is the sovereign, orchestrating director of the entire universe. And he can orchestrate and he can guide you and he can direct you through whatever it is you face. Let's pray. Father, what a scene this must have been. We're so thankful that we have a record of what happened that morning. And God, I I can't help but place myself in that crowd. I pray that you would help me and you would help all of us to see how your son worked and navigated and directed the events of this morning And we would trust that you still work today in the exact same way. I pray for the the person that's here this morning who is in the deep of chaos. I pray that even in their lack of understanding, that they would fall on their face before you as the king. I pray for that person you'd help them and you'd be close to them. You'd encourage them. And God, all of us here this morning, we recognize that um, you have come to save us. And it's not a question anymore. It has been done. You have done your part. Your son and his death on the cross has made it a statement of praise that you have saved us from the penalty and the death of our sin. And so, God, this morning, may we be grateful for Hosanna, that you have come to save us. As we sing this song, God, I pray that you continue to work in our minds and our hearts, and it's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray all these things. Amen.